I don't know if there's a better song to prepare uh, for just getting into God's Word and trying to get our hearts to a place where we're open to the truth that God wants to share with us. So, well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, speaking for myself, I know that, um, that even at my very best, uh, my life is a really cheap imitation of the perfect blend of grace and truth that Christ models. That's at my best. Now throw in a little bit of adversity, maybe some painful circumstances, turn up the heat a little bit on my life and watch out, right? My, my perspective, my attitude, my language, the things I say uh, can go south really quickly. And in those moments as a truth first person, um, that truth looks a lot more like criticism and a prideful spirit. Those of you that are the grace first people that I share life with, and in those moments where the heat's turned up in your life a little bit, what I observe sometimes is this obsessive people-pleasing spirit. And that can be destructive in its own way as well. So needless to say, uh, we rarely get perfect conditions in our life. So Our ability to extend grace and truth that we've been talking about for a long time as we look at Jesus' life and try to model our life after his, uh, it's going to be tested again and again. And Jesus' life was tested in many ways as well. We're going to take a look at one of those tests today. Now, these past couple of weeks, we've been kind of turning a corner in Jesus' story as he's now set his sights on Jerusalem. So we're we're closing in on his very last days on earth of his, his earthly ministry. And today's encounter actually takes us all the way up to the hill called Calvary, outside of Jerusalem, a word that means the place of the skull, where Jesus and two criminals were crucified before a vast mob. And to his very last breath, Jesus was extending grace and truth to whoever crossed his path, even in the moments of his greatest betrayal, his greatest pain, Jesus' focus was on others. How can I extend the gift to lost and hurting people. How can I be a gift? He was continually mindful of the the resources that he was stewarding, right? He knew that he had this message, this unbelievable message, this hopeful message of the gospel. And in every situation, he was mindful of that truth. So we have a lot to learn from Jesus today. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. It's page 962. And we're going to be um, starting in verse 32 today. But before we dive into that text, I want to kind of bring us up to speed on the story. Okay, so by this point that we're going to start reading at today, Jesus has already been put on trial and, and sentenced to death. And he's been flogged, which basically means that all the skin has been ripped from his back. He's been beaten. Um, a, a crown of thorns has mockingly been, been pounded into his scalp. And so Jesus was already in excruciating pain before the nails were ever driven into his hands and feet. And so let's look at verse 32 of chapter 23. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right 
the other on his left. And right away as I read this, I was intrigued by this fact that that Jesus could have been crucified alone, right? I mean, God's God, right? So he can have this go down however he wants it to go down. But in his sovereignty, he, he wants grace and truth to be on display right up into the very last moments of Jesus's life. And so God surrounded Jesus with two criminals, one on each side as he hung to die. Two men who had obviously made some some sinful, poor choices, and then were now um, suffering uh, at the justice at the hands of the Romans. And this scene would have also been a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12. It says this, because he, Jesus, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. <laughs> I can't say that right. Transgressors. There you go. So even onto the cross, Jesus associated himself with us, Right? He was crucified, a criminal of the state, just like the guys hanging next to him. So the scene is set. It's a scene where God is being mocked, and he's, he's been stripped down. He's been broken. He's in the most vulnerable moment of his life. Satan is throwing everything at him in one last final attempt to finish Jesus off. Let's look at verse 34. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So the crowd, the Jewish rulers, the Roman soldiers are all joining in this chorus, mocking Jesus and demanding that he do something to once again prove his godliness. If you're really God, get yourself down. Isn't it funny how quickly people can forget the long track record of Jesus' miraculous works? I mean, three years prior to this, that's all he'd been doing was going around and proving that he was God, doing things that only God can do, right? Walking on water, raising people from the dead, healing the blind, the lepers, the the demon-possessed, on and on. He'd been doing these things. But just like the crowd, when God isn't who we want him to be in particular moments of our life, we can forget the years of his faithfulness, and his goodness towards us. I want to say that again. Just like the crowd, when God isn't who we want him to be in a particular moment, we can forget the years of goodness and faithfulness that he's shown towards us. We can get really demanding. We can say, God, I need you to be this right now. I need you to show up and do this for me. Jesus wasn't meeting their expectations. An apparently weak, broken, pitiful man on a cross was not the Messiah they'd been hoping for. And when they looked around, I mean, what had really changed? I mean, the Romans were still in charge. They were still an occupied people. Where was this new kingdom that Jesus was talking about? 
we can get that way in our life too, right? We look around and what, what appears on the surface is like, God's what's really changing? What are you really doing in my life? Is anything really better than it used to be since I started following you? What are you up to? <clears throat> and there's a lot going on here on the, the grand scale, but, but Luke kind of takes his lens and zooms in now on these three guys on the cross and, and their conversation that they have with one another. As the criminals on either side are, are taking all this in, they begin to kind of join in the banter of the crowd. And I need to be clear that when you're hanging by your hands, shoulders separated from the weight of your body, chest constricted, lungs starting to fill up with fluid, every breath and every word that you speak is incredibly painful because you have to raise your feet up, push yourself up to open up your chest to get some breath and then try to say a few words before you slump back down again. The whole time, you know, the flesh twisting uh, against your feet and hands. And so conversations were not easy. And you guys might know this, a little seminary aside here. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, okay, because they, they kind of borrow from one another. They tell a lot of the same stories. John is, is kind of its own thing. Uh, he tells a lot of stories that the others don't include. So we see this story also, also in Matthew and Mark. And in both of those accounts, the gospel writers say that initially both criminals were joining in the crowd mocking Jesus. So that's kind of where these guys both kind of begin. Let's take a look at verse 39. <clears throat> it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So one criminal continues down this vein of calling on Jesus to prove himself. Hey, if you're so great, then get us out of this mess, right? Clearly unrepentant, clearly just kind of focused on the mess of his own circumstances. And he represents really most of the world. Most of the world kind of throws up at times when it's convenient for them what we call kind of the foxhole prayers, right? And these aren't the words that they say probably, but this is really what's happening. What's happening is they're saying in essence, hey God, I don't really want a relationship with you. I don't really appreciate what you've done for me on the cross and taking my sin on your shoulders and paying that price for me. What I really want is for you to intervene in my life right now and to make things better for me while demanding for me as little as possible. And I'm sure that we've all prayed some prayers like that in our life, um, maybe at times before we knew Christ, maybe sometimes even after. But this guy is desperate, and he doesn't have time for what he perceives to be a powerless Messiah. Now we see the other criminal pipe up but he has changed his tune, right? He, he was originally, according to the other accounts, kind of joining in the mocking game. And now he's, he's actually defending Jesus. Maybe over some time had transpired, but he arrives at a completely different perspective. And you might ask, like, well, how is that possible? How, how does he go from a mocker to a defender in just a few moments or half hour, hour? I don't know how long for sure. And, and people that say that obviously haven't been married. 
because those of you that are married, I've been married for 25 years, right? So 26 maybe, I don't know. Yeah, six. There you go. 26 years. Um, I can go into a conversation with my wife like so sure that I'm right and man, just coming in, you know, guns blazing, like, man, I'm going to get her. Boom, I got her now, you know, right? And then, um, you know, I can see her response and what she says back to me, and I can change my tune real quick, right? In the matter of a couple minutes, what I thought was so right is so wrong. And I'm like, baby, I'm sorry. I don't know what I said, you know, a couple minutes ago, but that, I'm not that guy, right? That was a fool that walked in here, right? So, dude, that happens all the time. So I actually was reading this week, and all these people were saying, well, maybe there were really four guys that Jesus was crucified with, because, yeah, and I'm just like, no, I don't buy any of that. So, anywho. So we hear this criminal say this different thing, and what, and if you look back at what the second criminal said, what all does he acknowledge? What all does he acknowledge? Verses 40 and 41. I'm asking you. Yeah. Okay, he acknowledges that Jesus is God. What else? Yeah. Yeah, they're getting what they deserve, right? Exactly. Okay, so he admits his guilt, also acknowledges Jesus' innocence. And when I was going through this, it reminded me of the roles that we looked at a while back when we studied kind of our stories and how we choose to kind of perceive them, when we talked about that in our life, um, that we all choose to take on a role as either the victim, the villain, or the hero in our own stories, right? And my guess is that, so this guy here is clearly acting as a hero in the worst possible situations. And my guess is that the role we choose to play in our circumstances in life, whether we take on the mantle of the victim, the villain, or the hero, has a massive impact on our ability to balance grace and truth in a way that truly reflects the heart of Christ. Right? Because if we're a victim, it's always somebody else's fault. And so it's hard to extend grace and truth with that perspective. When we're a villain, we're always trying to seek revenge to get back. It's hard to extend grace when you're a villain. A hero is somebody who says, you know what? Yeah, life's handed me some tough, tough cards here but I'm going to rise above that and see if we can't redeem this thing with God's help. Let's look at verse 42. Then the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what did the criminal ask for? He says, remember me sometime down the road, however long that's going to take, right? What does Jesus offer him in return? He says, I won't just remember you. You'll be with me. Not sometime in the future, but today, right? Not just in my kingdom, but in paradise. This this amazing blend of grace and truth is wrapped up into those comments in that moment. It definitely made me think about what kind of grace I would have for a criminal who kind of has this last-minute deathbed repentance, you know, or turn. How gracious am I towards people who might, I might think, man, they're getting what they deserve, um, that, to be open to the fact that their heart might turn 
sometimes it's hard for us to forgive people who want to live in a new way. We continue to see them as the person they used to be. God didn't see them as a criminal anymore. He saw them as a, a son. And the beauty of the grace offered here is that that man had no opportunity to do anything for Jesus. Right? A few weeks ago, we looked at um, a guy who came up to Jesus, the rich young ruler, who asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? But when you're hanging from a cross in the last moments of your life, your options are limited on what you can do for him. And this is interesting, guys. What hoops does Jesus ask the guy to jump through in order to be saved? What hoops does Jesus ask this guy to jump through in order to be saved? Hmm? Steph had the right answer. None, right? None. His transformation was already on display. And sometimes Christians can make salvation overly complicated for people. We want folks to say a particular prayer or to get a particular Bible verse tattoo or for conversion to look a certain way. And I can tell you guys, I've met with people before, you know, and all kinds of folks over the years. And, and usually I'll kind of dive in and commit a season of life to them I can tell that people are hungry to know Christ, and I'll meet with them week after week, and we'll just talk about their faith journey. And time and again, I can't put a, a finger on it, but at some point, they, they just get it. It just clicks. And I can tell that the Holy Spirit is in them. A couple weeks ago, it wasn't, and now it is. And I can see that the, their desires changing, they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness in a way that they weren't a few weeks ago. And so I've learned over the years to let go of what I feel like it has to look like in order for somebody to come to Jesus. Everybody's journey looks a little bit different, and it's not a formula that we have to force everybody through in order to be saved so that we can feel comfortable with that. Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> what did Jesus say to the mocking criminal in this story? Did he say anything? No. He didn't say a word. And I think we can learn a couple of things from Jesus' silence here. And I have a couple theories, all right? I don't know if they're true. But here's just kind of some things I came up with. Why Jesus doesn't say anything to him. One is that I didn't feel like Jesus probably needed, to, he didn't feel like he needed to defend himself, right? I mean, he had been going around for years doing miraculous things, right, that kind of spoke for themselves. He had proven to be the Messiah, God in the flesh, on multiple occasions. He didn't feel like he needed to do it one more time, okay? And I tell my staff that all the time, uh, and over, over the years, I've, I've looked at them and said, guys, you don't have to defend yourself when people attack or critique you. You don't have to do that. Because for one, um, you're never going to make everybody happy. <laughs> but secondly, your actions are going to speak louder than your words. And so if you just continue to live your life with integrity over time, either your character is going to be good enough for somebody else or it isn't. And you can't control that anyways. 
And, and for young people, that, that's, this is a really good lesson for all ages, but I think particularly for young people to understand that you don't always have to refute every attack against you. You don't have to defend yourself. Okay, just live a life of character over time and let that speak for itself. Secondly, maybe Jesus didn't want to write this guy off. Maybe he wanted to leave a door open for his conversion. Maybe Jesus was the first one to die of the three, and he thought, you know, maybe this guy's going to come around at some point like the other criminal did. And so he wanted to leave some space for that. But it made me wonder about how we treat people who are resistant or, or just downright obstinate towards the gospel. Do we hold out hope for them? Do we pray for them? And for those whose hearts seem farthest from repentance... When I was in college, I worked at a church in Kansas City that did uh, a summer internship uh, like we do. We actually kind of model it after them. And there was a kid that was in high school. I was one of the high school leaders for that summer. And um, <clears throat> he was just a punk. Um, you know, he was like that church kid that didn't want to be at church, and his parents made him come. And so his mission then was just to make it as miserable for everybody else as he possibly could. So he was just a jerk. Um, um, as a 15-year-old, right, like a lot of us can be. So, um, and anytime he did come to some kind of youth group function, it was probably because, um, you know, he could get rope a couple of his friends in going with him, or he just wanted to make it miserable, or, or his parents had made him go. Um, but I remember seeing him a few years later. They had kind of a reunion, and this kid was in college now, and obviously was different. I mean, his whole countenance was just um, just cheerful. There was joy there. Um, and I remember talking to him, and uh, he was just talking about how much his life had changed. And, but he said, he's like, he was so thankful for the staff and the volunteers at that church who had, hadn't given up on him, who had continued to reach out to him and to pray for him, even when he knew. He was like, man, I was a jerk in high school. But man, his whole life, his whole countenance had changed. And he was so grateful for the people that didn't write him off. And guys, throughout our life, there are going to be people around us that embody the characteristics of those two criminals. Some that resist and mock who we are and what we do and others who repent and turn to Christ. And at first glance, they might both seem like punks, just like these guys were. But we never know what God is doing in their life beneath the surface. And so our role as followers of Christ is to continue to love, continue to care for people that come across our path, our enemies as well as those who are easy to be around and as we do that, we continue to dispense the, the word of God, the grace and truth liberally over as many hearts as we kind of come in contact with. And I can tell you that the driest ground has the biggest cracks, right? In the summer, we're not getting any rain. The, the earth just kind of opens up. And hardened hearts sometimes have those big cracks, man. And if you continue to be faithful, those seeds will slip down in there. And then when you get the, the right amount of water at the right time, all of a sudden something's growing up out of that person's heart that you couldn't even tell was going on beneath the surface. And all of a sudden you see something wonderful coming out of that person's life in ways you never could have imagined. So our goal is just to liberally dispense it, right, to people that we either see responding or even those that we see as resistant, just keep being grace and truth to everyone around us. And what I love about this interaction at the cross is that Jesus ends up right back where he began. John chapter 1. 
We started this whole series with John 1.14 that says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The perfect blend of those things. And until his last breath, he continued to dispense grace and truth, even to those guys that died alongside him. And the good news is that that gift of grace and truth is available and extended to us today. One truth that we really need to embrace and kind of wrap our minds around this morning is that our sin demanded a horrific sacrifice in order to be forgiven. Right? Our goodness, our attempts to be good couldn't pay the penalty for our sin. It required the sacrifice of a perfect and spotless lamb of God. And we can't overlook that today. We can't be indifferent to that news. It needs to hit us fresh. That's the reality of our condition apart from Christ. And another amazing truth is that his grace was sufficient to cancel that debt for us. And that his grace is open to everyone to receive it. Later on in his life, the Apostle Peter wrote these beautiful words. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Not by your good effort. Not by your volunteerism or your generosity. By his wounds you have been healed. So when we come to the table today for communion, and and as we looked at this story of the cross today, we get this glimpse of who Jesus was in his worst moment. Right? When he's under the the heat's turned up the most, that if anybody was going to like give him a pass of like, well, maybe he doesn't have to be as nice as he might normally be, he still is, is unbelievably gracious when he's in the most pain in his life. And I think sometimes, I know I do, I'll speak for myself, that I want to let myself off the hook when circumstances get kind of rough in my life, when I've had a a difficult season or I'm feeling sick or um, we've gotten some tough breaks with our finances or whatever it might be. I want to use those things as an excuse to, to not act with grace and truth to act like a jerk, basically, and to kind of give excuses. Oh, well, yes, things have just been kind of hard. You need to have some grace with me, right? But Jesus' example is, hey, I'm, I'm hanging on the cross dying here, and I'm still extending grace and truth in unbelievable ways to people around me. And if we're going to be followers of Christ, we've looked at this verse a lot in First John, it says that we must walk as Jesus walked. We must And so even in our darkest moments, our hardest times in life, we have got to pray to God and say, God, help me to be grace and truth right now when I don't feel like it, when I don't feel like I have the capacity to extend that to folks around me. We have to reflect him well in the tough times as well as when it's easy. And so let's pray in that vein today as we come to the table to say, God, I want to be grace and truth and reflect that as best as I can in the, in the peaks and the valleys of my life so that 
people that are surrounding me in either one of those moments are still getting you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your example as you hung on the cross and these conversations and interactions that you had with two guys who maybe looked like they didn't deserve your love. God, that you, you, you poured out your grace in, in the last moments of their life when they had no ability to do anything to show their appreciation for you. God, help us to be like you. Whether we're riding high and things are going well or we're sick and we're tired and, and we're stressed and anxious, God, there is grace for us in those times. But God, we're, we're a reflection and example of you all the time, <laughs> not just when we want to be. And so God, I pray that you would help us to lean into your example here on the cross of who you were in the darkest moments. God, we love you. We pray that as we come that we would remember that only because you're, you were broken and you were poured out, only by your wounds are we healed. And I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly today, that we would remember that. We just give you this time as we quietly come before you right now.